Welcome to Hear Us Wisconsin, Youth Voices on Youth Justice. My name is Bria Brown, and I'll be guiding you through this episode. In this special series within a series, we are sharing the full uncut interviews from the professionals who were featured in this podcast. You heard snippets of their interviews throughout the whole series, and we're so excited to share the full interviews with you so that you can gain the insight and knowledge that they have to share. In this episode, you'll hear the full interview from Everett Mitchell, Dane County Circuit Court Judge. All right, so my name is Everett Mitchell, uh, Dane County Circuit Court Judge, as well as Senior Pastor of Christ of Solid Rock Baptist Church. Uh, I'm currently in the juvenile rotation at, at the Dane County Circuit Court, so I deal with children uh, who have been removed from their home, as well as parents who are trying to get their parent, trying to get their children reconnected. Um, in addition, I deal with children who are in the juvenile system, those who create uh, offenses starting at the age of 10 all the way up to about age 17. Um, and I do other stuff with uh, civil and uh, termination parental rights cases as well. So I have the full range and gamut of my experiences uh, with, with the juvenile rotation. I will say that when we look at uh, the issues I see, I see a deep connection between the link between child welfare to juvenile delinquency to adult prison. And the reason I talk a lot about that is because what I'm seeing is that we're passing traumatized children from one system to the next without addressing what are the underlying trauma issues that these children have experienced. And sometimes they're experiencing trauma within the institutions that we put them in order to get help. So the so you start to see these patterns emerge uh, in the cases. You start to see the children being disconnected from multiple systems, not just the system, uh, the course system that they're in, but you start to see a disconnect in education system, healthcare delivery systems, food systems, transportation system, economic systems. All of these systems seem to break down and don't have a cohesive way to think about, well, how do we assist this child who has been removed from their home and then uh, is trying to move through various different systems at the same time to get the help that he or she needs. We started to realize that a lot of the JV cases that were coming into our court were having CPS contact when by CPS Child Protective Service contacts, and some of them were substantiated and some of them were not. But the unsubstantiated ones could be so many different types of incidences where somebody's trying to report, but you know, uh, the worker will be like, well, no one will answer the door, no, no one will return our phone calls. And so as a result of that, the investigation just stops. And there are a lot of children, by the time they get to a, a formal CHIPS case or even to a JV case, that they have endured what I call thousands of micro cuts of pain that they are now struggling to try to deal with that sometimes is even more devastating than the, a big traumatic event happening in their lives. Uh, the many times that they're told you're nothing or the many times that they're not prioritized or the hundreds of times that they're not their needs are not being met or being treated as though they're important all contribute to their feeling that both any type of family system that they need to support them is just gone and any kind of social system that is there that should support them is also gone as well. Um, and can you speak a little bit to the um, to what you alluded to that the um the system itself, sort of the, the how it operates, the child welfare system, can uh, sort of 
layer on additional trauma, like the system itself is traumatizing, and therefore um, funneling youth into sort of other behaviors that get them involved in the criminal justice uh, circumstance. Lots of the kids that we talked to were in foster care and then moved around a number of times in foster care, homeless, in and out of group homes, on that angle, but then they're in school, they're acting out, and then it becomes um, another case. Yeah, so the, you know, the intention of the child welfare system really is admirable. It is really to see if there's any safety concerns and try to alleviate those safety concerns so that children can remain in their homes uh, safely. What we sometimes miss is the layered trauma of most of the parents who are in the system, the child welfare system, have sometimes had prior experiences themselves. And so there's this layer of trauma on top of trauma where nobody has ever met the parents' needs, and so they are now in a position where they're trying to parent and they can't do so effectively uh, because of all the different stresses that are on their lives. Um, and so the, so the goal then is to try to figure out, okay, what is the plan to assist this child and this parent and these relatives to create a plan that allows for this child to have some kind of family connection uh, while, while they go through the system. And that is where I think a lot of the struggles as a judge, you know, you, because you're looking for plans, you're looking for ideas, you're looking for ways that, that you can construct uh, something that this child can actually have a bridge to go back home eventually. And sometimes the goal is to have it happen within, you know, six months or a year. But there are a lot of cases where they just continue to linger for a number of reasons. So when we talk about, you know, how how does their involvement make the trauma worse? Well, you know, trauma really is about a narrative. It's about a narrative that has been broken, where mistrust has been seeded through some type of physical or real experience. And the time you remove a child from their family environment, you're already creating a trauma in the removal itself. The subsequent moves do nothing but reinforce a trauma to a young child. So you don't want me, my mama don't want me, nobody wants me, nobody cares, nobody listens to me, you know, and they're screaming for help. It's just sometimes the only way that the system responds is when they act in a negative way. So then they get all the attention, they get all of the reinforcement because now they have acted out and now everybody wants to come in and say, what can we do? Why can't we got to help this child? When they were crying out for help before, uh, there may not have been anyone who really uh, chose to use interventions to positively reinforce the things that they were doing uh, that, that others liked. So the so I see more of that trauma. I see more of that pain because they are looking for places that are safe for them, that respects them, that hears them. And when they don't get those spaces, they run. And when they run, we have a tendency to treat them even worse um, when they run. Now, I've, I've had to learn to accept the fact that sometimes kids talk with their feet. Uh, and you have to appreciate the talking with their feet. And when they walk away, that may be the best way that they know how to control their anger and frustrations so that they do not do something that escalates violently uh, with these individuals that they may come in contact with. So that all brings me to another question. Um, one of the things we heard from lots of the youth in 
which was interesting, is that they took a lot of responsibility, sort of upon reflection of the circumstances and, and, and the role that they played in being involved in the juvenile justice system. Um, you hear less about the adults in the system itself taking responsibility for what um, they're doing to the kids, the role that they're playing, right? Um, so to that end, what can a judge or attorneys do to um, either make the courtroom experience better or just take on some of the responsibility for um, their own accountability, you know, the system's own accountability in the role that it plays? Well, one of the things that I've always stressed is that no juvenile should come into court in handcuffs or restraints. Uh, I mean, too many courts around our, our, our state and probably the nation allow children to be brought in these hang, brought into these spaces like they're already adult criminals. Now, we're asking for them to respond like children, respond like human beings, but we treat them like they've already uh, escalated their behavior to such that we have to restrain them like they are some kind of adult criminal that we're afraid of. To me, that sends the wrong message. It, it sends a message of opposition rather than community building. So when they come into court, you know, I push hard to ensure that these children, uh, at least at a minimum, are not presumed to need to come into court in, in restraints. Now, obviously, if, they, if they've done behavior that makes sense, you can definitely retreat back to that. But you should assume that they can control themselves. You should assume that they can handle their business, and as they handle their business, you know, they can go back and deal with even the tough decisions that you got to make. But you have to give them the chance to, re to, to, to remove the opportunity for them to respond in a humane way. Um, to me, only creates more chaos in their minds about this process, and we have to do better. And I think uh, that would be one. And then secondly, I think the, how you talk is very important. Who talks and why they talk becomes very, um, very instrumental in whether or not the the motions that are before the court make sense. Like the kids, like the kids sometimes would come when I first started. They would just come and just hang their heads down in sadness because, and then all these adults would just dump on them for you know 25, 30 minutes, and I'm, and I'm sitting there looking at them, and I'm like, or am I the only one paying attention to this kid's verbal or nonverbal expressions of how they feel at this moment? And so immediately after that, it didn't feel good, and the kids, you know, were letting me know it didn't feel good. So I said, you know, this is what I'll do. I'll make them give me the, they'll write the negative, but we only gonna say the positive. I need them to build on what is constructive for these kids rather than always thinking that it's, it's necessary to, uh, quote, unquote, give me the truth. Because they felt like they were giving me the truth when they told me this bad stuff. And I was like, I can read. Send it to me. You know, send it to me a week ahead of time, and we can have a conversation about that. But at this moment, in open court, in front of all these people, let's focus on the opportunities this child has for something better rather than you know trying to dump on them for all the bad things they've done they're in jail or they're in custody they know what they've done they don't need me to further remind them what they need is how what is the constructive bridge to get out of that life so they can do something different with it uh, and that's what we need to be spending our time on uh, i don't need to spend my time on anything else and so tone is very important tone how i talk uh, how i engage them how I listened to them, and it was an old judge. Right when I was when I was training, he brought me he brought uh, brought some some paperwork up, and he was kind of like their mentor for a little bit. And he went down and read all the facts, and he said, "What you ought to do is go find some about them inside all this stuff. Say some stuff you discard, but if you find some interesting, and then talk to them about the thing that you found." 
And that's what I do. You know, I have a wonderful memory, so I remember certain things about the kids, and and I talk to them about that stuff. And it brings more humanity back to a process that it sometimes can be stripped of it. And then I think it brings power back to the kids because their voice, to me, is the most important voice in that moment. Not the adults, not the social worker, not the DA, and not even the public defender. It is their voice. And however they choose to express it, whether it is verbal or nonverbal, whether it's writing me letters. They love to write me letters to tell me, I ain't going to never get in trouble again, Judge. Trust me. <laughs> but uh, And I'd be like, it is that letter that I will sometimes refer to if they do get back in trouble. I said, now, this is what you wrote. This is what you said you were going to do. And tell me why you didn't keep your word to yourself. Don't worry about disappointing me. Worry about this for yourself. So tell me what, you know. And then, you know, they'll have me a conversation. And then it's amazing how they are so introspective about those choices. Okay, so my last question, uh, what would be the most significant reforms we can make to the system? You can shoot the I know. I mean, it just, that's a very complex, it's a simple question with a very complex answer. I'll start with, we have to understand what, what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, for me, being a kid who grew up poor and traumatized, I recognize that education is probably the most central tool that these children would need in order to kind of transform their lives. I, re I recognize shortly I've taken the bench that these children are not educated. That's when I, that's when I came in contact. Now I think I told either you or you know my passion for shortened school days that all of these black, brown, low-income white children were being placed in these school days where they were only going an hour and a half, two hours a day, and everybody seemed okay with that. Everybody seemed okay with the fact that these children who need education the most were being the least educated by these systems that purport to being supportive of these children. I, I, it broke my heart to see that we're going to be putting these children out on the streets and we're robbing them of every option that they have. So when I sit down with the kids and, and I ask them about the education and their goals, many of them have already been trained that school is not for them. They've been taught that school is not for them. And so my attempts to re-engage them in the education process sometimes seems weird because they're not used to system partners thinking about their education like that. So only only illustration I've been able to use that even makes sense to them is I give them an options talk. I say, well, you want the options talk? They're like, all right, what well, judge? Give me the options talk. And I say, you can either, this education for me, kids, is one of two things. One, education is like going to a restaurant and you only got one thing on the menu. If you don't have your education, whatever they put on that menu, you have to eat. I said, so I'll say you got a a, a, a bun with some boo-boo and some rat urine on it and some pickles with some ketchup and hot sauce on top of that with some you know dirty rice or something crazy. And I said, if you don't have education, that's what you have to eat. I said, do you want to eat that? And they're like, heck no. <laughs> I said, you want to go to the restaurant, you got a four-course meal where you got an entree, dessert, where you can have some appetizers, where you can have a little side salad, where you can have options to choose from, right? You want three different meat dishes, some vegetarian dishes, some vegetarian options, or maybe some vegan options. Maybe you lactose intolerant, you don't want any kind of cheese or milk on that, but you want the option to be able to deny or take it at the same time. But if you don't have education, you don't get those choices. And I said, people are effectively denying you the right to walk in any space and choose the destiny that you want for yourself. Um, the systems were not even coordinated to support these kids. Um, 
so that they could even have an edu education options. Um, and like I said, the many of the partners were okay with that, including uh, school districts themselves. Same thing with uh, healthcare delivery systems. There's no 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 means in which we get uh, direct access to their phys mental health, mm -hmm. and making sure that there's psychological psychiatric services both in the school. I mean, it seemed to me to make more sense to place a psychiatrist in a school than it does uh, police, right? Because most of these kids don't have access to a, a prescribing psychiatrist that they need to kind of check in with. Um, and trying to get them an appointment with a prescribing psychiatrist is almost like the holy grail that you you know, you, you got to work magic. So the so you need a concerted system that focuses on education, the the health needs, and then um, and I and I hate to say this, but also reconstructs what family looks like for them. So you're not going to have the two parents and the white picket fence and you know we're going to go surfing. So how can they have a reconstructed family? And what does that reconstructed family look like for them? Where many of them are the adult and the child at the same time. They're playing multiple roles in multiple different spaces, and they don't have the generalized support that most people have in their space. And so how do we, how do we help them be both parent and child? How do we help them to prepare for their lives when there are no system partners who are gonna be there and they need to be independent and live in an independent space without any support. So while at the same time honoring and caring for their families because they love them, but they may not be the best for them for the long term. Uh, you know, those those big system things uh, are changes that we can um, we can both make. Uh, I have man, I tell you, I got pages of ideas of stuff that I have always stressed about. You know working with school districts, make sure we have mentors, you know, funding spaces for children that are beautiful spaces rather than always locking them into, you know, ugly, drab, second-thought spaces. We need, you know, transitional housing for children who are going to be in foster care to the age of 18 and making sure that they have, you know, safe, stable housing and that they can build their rental histories between the ages of 18 and 22 uh, and then transition at 22 into their own independent living situation. We need to have uh, more opportunities for community members to come into these spaces to give uh, and not hide behind the cloak of confidentiality. So if these children never know what it means to be in community other than just always being around those of us who have control over their life. And then obviously I believe in a lot of therapy. I just, I think there's benefit for helping people process their pain. And there is, there's a sense that people, especially the providers, uh, we make them feel responsible for their pain. Kind of like the example you gave earlier where kids kind of internalize that it's my response. When it's not, it is not their fault at all. It's not their responsibility, but how we translate that into, you know, you taking ownership for you because we're here to take responsibility are things we need to, you know, really make sure we do. So. We need to. I just continue to push for. We need a statewide uh, bill that demonstrates um, no handcuff and no handcuffs or restraints on children in any courtroom in, throughout the state. Uh, and then we need a a huge push to make sure that um, we have more options for children inside of our state and what that looks like and how we provide that to 
those children and to those families uh, will be supportive as important as well. And then part lastly is the idea that the families are often on the hook for these decisions that we make about their children. So they have to be re- you know, reimbursed. And so the rates are always increasing as relates to custody for children. Residential care treatments, I think it's almost like $500 a day, which can lead to about close to $200,000 a year. Um, so you're looking at extreme costs and then so you're taking the most vulnerable and the most broken poor families and you're asking them to be able to really fund a portion of this system which to me you know taking that money and reinvesting it in different activities might be more supportive of that i just had one of my kids um you know she's she has she has some cases and um there's this project that we've been working on called above the clouds where we take you know black brown children and we expose you know take them up and i got one of my members at the church is a former pilot and she started this project she takes them up into the air got other pilots they learn how to fly a plane they even let them fly over you know take them all over dane county got a route for them and you start i started to sense something change in the kids who are doing this so i said well one of the mentors said well can you know this juvenile sign up i said yeah that's fine we can you know she can sign up and it was just amazing to see the transformation of this kid who, when you look at the rap sheet, you're like, oh, my God, there's no way she even should be free. But but begins to see this experience where she is being redefined differently. Now, she gets up there. She's sick as all get out. <clears throat> but by the time she lands, what we have given her is an option for her future. She is not. You know, we could I could have I could have locked her up or I could have set her free. And, and I think that's the ultimate de- you know, decision we all make. You know, what does it mean to to set a child free? And I think all the things we impose upon them is meant to further incarcerate them. But it's some powerful if you can unlock and free their imagination. They will know how to face the challenges probably even better than we could. They just need to be given the permission to do so. Thank you for listening to Hear Us. If you would like additional information and resources, please visit our website, racetoequity.net. We want to extend a special thank you to the youth who bravely shared their experiences with us. We also want to thank the professionals who shared their insights with us. Thank you to Ward FM in Madison, Wisconsin, and the Underground Collective in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for recording space and expertise. And finally, thank you, Erica Nelson, for forging this project. This podcast was made possible by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, B. Brown Productions, and the Kids Forward Race to Equity team. Editing and narration was done by Bria Brown of B. Brown Productions, narration by Alexa Turner, and the cover art by Walker TKL. Please subscribe to Hear Us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much.